Where I come from, we're very careful about our biosecurity. Sniffer dogs patrol the airports and docks, not for drugs, but for contraband fruit and vegetables. Years ago, at the conclusion of a road trip with a lover, which ended with both of us taking separate paths, the inspector at Port Melbourne pulled a tiny shriveled flower from where it had been stuck in a vent by the woman I'd travelled with. You can't bloody have that, mate, he growled, and crushed the flower in the palm of his hand. To be fair, I guess he didn't know what an emotional bit of symbolism he'd created. The passenger ship that runs between Tassie and the mainland is called the Spirit of Tasmania, although generally locals just call it the Spirit. The poetic potential of this name only became clear to me when I visited the port city where that ship docks on the northwest coast with a friend who'd grown up there, and she had a bit of a chip on her shoulder about her hometown. And when we made it to the river mouth, and I, in a fairly banal manner, pointed out the boat doing its U-turn in order to depart, she curled her lip in resentment. Oh, look, the spirit's leaving, I'd said. And she replied, That's a euphemism, right? Isn't that what they say about death? That the spirit has left? I realised then that there must be a psychological effect that comes from looking every day through your teenage years at a ferry that gets to go away often and with ease. My mate at that stage hadn't left Tassie, and when she did, she took off for good. We all felt that pull at one point or another. The message whispered in your ear as you lurched into adulthood was that if you wanted to make anything of your life, you ought not be in Tasmania, this remote outcrop, an off-cut from a far-flung continent, a million miles from anywhere, largely forgotten, certainly not at the centre of any enterprise or industry. I got why my friend had watched the spirit come and go with bitterness, why she and others left without turning around, lest they become, like Lot, a pillar of salt. Or in a metaphor that's perhaps a better fit for the northwest coast, a pile of wood chips. My childhood plot was a five-acre block of brush and scrub. Later we moved to the outskirts of Launceston, but our backyard was adjacent to a reserve that was about five acres of brush and scrub. Never struck me that you might need more room to manoeuvre, not till we took a family road trip up to Queensland. The first leg was the drive to the port to get on the ferry, and I can almost put myself back in the mood I'd have been in then. The mounting excitement that comes with being on the edge of the map of your known world Mum must have been nervy too. She was never a great traveller. And when the Titanic theme song came on the radio, just as we reached the docks, she gestured at it fatalistically, resigned to the fact that it was an omen, that we were doomed. But believe it or not, we didn't hit an iceberg that night on our crossing of Bass Strait. And in the morning we stole what we could from the breakfast buffet and hit the road into the unknown. 
later, much later, I discovered that the feelings experienced upon returning home are in fact a hundred times more potent than that which comes on departure. There's always a kind of pragmatic thought process that comes from setting out on a journey. I think that tempers your feelings a bit. You wonder, have I packed the right things? Do I have my paperwork in order? Where am I staying on that first night away? Will I be able to communicate with the locals? How do you speak with Queenslanders anyway? The return is more serene, less focused on practical matters. Homecoming is pure emotion. Not that the emotion is necessarily uncomplicated, but generally you can just settle into it and feel. Perhaps my mate from Devonport is yet to experience that. I suppose she'll come home someday. Sometime later still I wound up working on the spirit of Tasmania. I worked with musicians, all of whom seemed contractually bound to play John Denver's country roads as we drew near to Devonport. Though I have to admit, once or twice, driving off the ferry at dawn and onto the gravel backtracks that took me back to my home in the bush, I let the lyrics of that song roll around in my brain and thought that, even if it was a terrible cliché, there's something bloody lovely about it as well. It rained all night. Not that I really noticed, I slept right through it, but when I got up I could tell it had been pissing down non-stop. 
because puddles had multiplied across the yard. And I'd left open the wooden door to the cottage I sleep in, which I do every night. And now it seemed to be soaked right through. And the pond on the edge of the yard was brimming over, pouring grey-blue water down channels into culverts, braiding into streams that drained down the valley and into the river, and eventually out to sea. It was a good day to find myself ensconced in the train carriage, with a fire smouldering away and candles flickering on bookcases. A day for copious cups of tea. Maybe a glass of wine, should I feel so inclined. A day to keep a curry bubbling on the hob, and to have at hand a dense historical text to read and reread until it made sense. an old train carriage, this shack of mine. But with the rain hammering down on the tin roof and soaking into the dirt and pooling between the stumps on which the wagon is raised, it was easy enough to imagine it as a ship instead. The boggy ground outside became moiling ocean. The carriage, now buoyant, and instead of inert, settled into the station, going nowhere. I was on a voyage by boat. I could picture it as a schooner with a couple of sails aloft. A real pirate ship with old-fashioned muskets hidden, ready to raise over the sponson, and pilfered gold stowed away in the hold. Or better still, I might envision it more like the boat of those blokes who tried to whip up what they thought was a traditional Polynesian ocean-going raft. They called it the Contiki. You probably know the story. And I too might just be able to recreate a large-scale excursion in my train carriage, submitting to the trade winds, navigating by the stars. From where I live, the drainage systems would take me to Bass Strait, and then the currents would push me west. Although this La Nina weather system might just shunt me further to the south, so I could thus see myself tacking beneath the bottom tip of New Zealand in order to get out into the Pacific and after that to see what I would find. For a very long time, the island on which I live was considered, by a lot of so-called experts, a fable, a furphy. The existence of Terra Australis, the southern land, had been speculated by many, but there wasn't much to prove it. One argument ran that there must be a southern continent to give the earth some equilibrium. It was Europeans who were saying this. Turns out it was as good a guess as any, even if ultimately it made little sense. Yet it took centuries for seafarers to catch a glimpse of the outer crust of this country. The beaches of WA, the furthest reaches of Tasmania, and sometime after that, the eastern seaboard. I quite like the mythos in this, of living in a land that made it to world maps late in the peace, in a distant place that to some still seems shrouded with secrecy and hearsay. Of course, for those who'd originally moved here from the archipelagos to the north, there was no need for proof. However many millennia ago, they'd come on their own well-used watercraft across straits of sea adjacent to their own islands. 
it's been theorised that this happened by accident. That perhaps these fishing folk were blown off course by rogue winds. It strikes me as more likely that these islanders watched certain birds migrate year after year and determined that there must be country elsewhere, habitat for them as well. Whatever other impulses they might have had to travel, demographic pressures that may have pushed them to look for new resources, I reckon they had a rough idea of what they were doing. But that's just a hunch of my own, based on what I know of human nature. While they were here, where I live, the waters rose. The weather was warming up. Ice was melting. Tasmania became an island. Old campsites, on beaches or upon the Bassian Plains, they were submerged. And for about 10,000 years, Aboriginal families were confined to life here. I won't speculate on what they remembered of that other bit of the country, the North Island, the mainland, but it would be fascinating to know. They didn't make it back there till whitefellas rocked up and made a mess of more or less everything. But in the meantime, those first Tasmanians built boats of their own, catamarans of branches and reeds on which they rowed to offshore islands. There is always it seems to me, exploring to be done. Even though I'm very much a landlubber, I dare say that nothing goads adventurers on more than the ocean. All this is to say that my floating train carriage, curious as it may be, won't be the first and won't be the last idiosyncratic watercraft to wander the surface of the ocean in search of something new. If it all goes as I suspect, which is to say quite badly because I'm not much of a sailor, I suppose I'll end up in the doldrums, or in that dystopian patch of the Pacific where all the water swirls in a wretched gyre of plastic rubbish. At least while I'm there I can pick up some of it and shoo away the albatross and shearwaters and terns who mistakenly try to feed their young this detritus of human materialism the crumbs from our voracious consumeristic feast, the consequences of which we are still no doubt to completely see. But forgive me. I've strayed away from what I was originally thinking. Last night my neighbour Lindsay sent me a text to check in on me to make sure I was somewhere safe and sound as this rain set in. Yep, I'm in the train, I replied. But who knows, I went on to say, but that I might yet float off, that the carriage could come off its stumps and be spirited away by torrents as the waters rose. Lindsay took that image a little further. Then you'll be going somewhere, she said. You could float all over the world in the train carriage and meet people and tell your stories. Then they'll make a kid's show out of it. Here comes Bert in his floating train carriage. It's Bert, it's Bert. 
in his big red train carriage, floating here, floating there, bird in his train, floating everywhere. <laughs> if nothing else, it seemed to me that that's the direction my career should take. That could be my big break. But when I look out the windows of the train carriage, I see that I am still fixed in place, moored in the sheltered harbour of this forest. And the tops of the gum trees seem almost perfectly still. The rosellas and ravens and kookaburras seem unbothered by the weather. They trill and chime and caw. Soon, presumably, the rain will run out. The sun will shine, and I will move again on land. Till then I'm content to stay put. But if you do know any producers of children's television, well, give them my details, would you? The breeze blew through the rail around the deck like a flute. The ropes stretched and relaxed, like you do in a yoga routine. We were sailing parallel to the sheer facades of Dolorite Cliffs, a coastline I knew well. Sheltered bays and narrow passages in which islands were scattered, capped with guano and greenery. Islands on which seals and sea eagles alike had made colonies. The waves were like liquefied gold, and for a week we plotted a course for coastal national parks, terra firma from where we could ascend mountains, returning to the yacht each night to sip champagne and talk shit. I, of course, was guiding tourists, and doing shifts in the galley washing dishes, but for them, I'm sure it was pure bliss. On Smoko, I would read a book that put me back on the Bosphorus Sea, the strait that bisects Istanbul. So I found myself mentally returned to the ferry boats that pinball between the keys and jetties of that city, where jellyfish float like rags or plastic bags, and schools of anchovies shift about dodging the nets dangling off the dinghy's sterns, aspiring not to be stuffed into the famous Turkish fish sandwich, Balak Ekmek.
If I looked up from the literature, I knew where I actually was. But when I turned my face back to the book, I was chugging across a different sea, in transit between Europe and Asia, getting ready to disembark at Yenikui or Uskudar, Kadakui, Sariar, or the Golden Horn. And the ferry was full of chatter, as if it was suspended on the water only thanks to conversation, buoyant with gossip. I've long known you can be in two places at once, or in three, or four, or five. More to the point, it actually takes practice to stay where you are, to be fully present and focused and in the moment, not unmoored on seas of fantasy, imagination, memory. Not that it's always a curse to have your current location suffused with the dreams of elsewhere. That's part of the curious nature of having consciousness, I guess. There's a beauty about bringing Istanbul to eastern Tassie, or taking, as I also have, the estuary of the Tama River, Kanamaluka, to Kuala Lumpur, or to combine the central plateau and Jerusalem. But sometimes you want to rein yourself in, to hone in on the sliver of life you've actually been given, rather than what you claim through creativity. Now at the bow of this tourist yacht there were dolphins. Slick, dark, sleek swimmers. Leaping and diving in the wake where the bow cuts the waves asunder and peels back the water in perfect arcs. Dolphins also bounce across the Bosphorus, like threads stitched feverishly into the water. And letting the book rest for just a moment in my lap, I wondered if these creatures weren't also sewing lines throughout all the world's seas and oceans. If there was not some grand aquatic narrative we could draw upon to dream places together. But this, I suspected was the sort of fairy tale from which I might never come back from. Back to my tiny spot on the map. This speck where longitude and latitude coincided within my little body. And then the yacht got hit with a heavy gust. Sideswiped it was. The sails swelled suddenly and the boat listed and lurched and I was jolted back awake. I put the book aside. It was Land Ahoy. And yet as we neared the beach, the wind blew gently through the steel railing and I could have sworn it was playing an oriental tune. I'm sure it was a composition I once overheard in a back alleyway in Istanbul. A melody called Song in Mahur. Like the dolphins' endless journeys, dipping in and out of view. These melodies, passing in and out of our awareness, like a radio grasping for its signal. Such songs as these, they hold the world together for a few minutes at a time at least.
flooding had been forecast. So I went to my bookshelves for expert advice. I pulled down the Bible and read about what to do in a flood. And here's the story I found. Once upon a time, some chosen people pissed off their god so much that he cracked the shits and decided to drown the lot of them, along with every skerrick of his terrestrial creation. The account of this incident is pretty early on in the sacred book of that particular mob, which doesn't bode too well, now that I think of it, that the god was ready to give up on them so quickly. But anyway... He gathered together all the rain clouds he could and set a storm in motion so that rain would pour relentlessly and flood the whole bloody world. At a late stage in the game, he decided to give the animals of the land a bit of a break. He got a bloke called Noah to cobble together a decent-sized boat made to precise specifications with nice little windows, three decks of a certain size, all sealed with pitch. And Noah was to get ready to launch it on the waters that would rise. He was told to gather all the animals of the field, coupled up or in herds of seven for some species, and flocks of seven for the bird species as well. These were to become insurance populations to keep such animals from going extinct. They all crowded obediently onto the boat along with Noah's extended family and then it started raining. They sailed while the catastrophic deluge began, destroying everything, an absolute tragedy. It took 150 days for the waters to subside and on the 17th day of the 7th month, that's my brother's birthday actually, by the current calendar at least. On that day, Noah's Ark ran aground on the top of a mountain some thousands of metres above sea level. The first ascent of Mount Ararat. Or so they say. There are actually nine different tellings of the story of a massive flood in Mesopotamia. Another famous iteration was that of a chap called Utnapishtim. It's recorded in the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the oldest storybooks ever written. Utnapishtim recounted that the storm that flooded the world lasted six days, but still made the gods retreat in fear. And it was so powerful it reduced all human beings to a shapeless slick of clay. Here the flood was largely due to a tug of war between a pair of gods, sons of the sky deity, who were having a scrap about something or other. One of the recurring lessons of mythology is that the costs of divine capriciousness can be quite high, and that it's a shame we rarely get gods who don't have such hot tempers. The oldest version of the flood myth is probably that of Atrahasis, whose ark, thousands of years ago, was built in an almost circular shape. This yarn got written down in the Akkadian alphabet, 
which is one of those scripts with spiky shapes pressed into clay tablets and baked hard like Granny's Anzac biscuits. The reason that the gods caused the flood in the Atrahasis version of this yarn was, when it comes down to it, because of overpopulation. So one shudders to think what Enlil and Enki would do if they were still looking down on the human horde that spread over the globe in the millennia since they flooded the Fertile Crescent and set Atrahasis spinning around with all the animals in the murky waters that must have risen from the ancient Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Looking at the forecast, I joked that I should fill my train carriage with a couple of every critter out there. The paddy melons, the possums, the echidnas. They ought not be too hard to hurt. The platypus, the skinks, the snakes. They may be a little trickier. And the devils and quolls and native hens would all be hard yakker in such a confined space as the carriage is. And then I guessed I must go out and collect some insects, some invertebrates. I knew I'd easily find the bright yellow worm I call bulate, because these love rainy days so much. But I best go fossicking around, looking under leaf litter and rocks for wood lice, sugar ants, jewel bugs, weevils, caterpillars and leeches, right? And I supposed I should be collecting microorganisms as well. Digging up big piles of dirt and dumping them in the carriage so the bacteria and nematodes don't go extinct. We need them. And what about these birds? Couldn't they just perch on the roof of my ark as we drift off? Seven of every species of honeyeater, wren, robin, corvid and raptor. And what about sea creatures, marine mammals, fish, crustaceans? I went back to the Bible. But there aren't as many answers there as you might think. Late in the afternoon I got a text message from emergency services. Written in a mad, self-styled grammar. Mixed up capital letters and missed full stops. Emergency. Emergency, it read. Those in low-lying, flood-prone areas should evacuate now, move to higher ground. It had rained for 24 hours straight. Persistent precipitation. And perhaps behind me on the plateau, where the catchment begins, it had pounded down and poured off the escarpment the various cascades running with cataclysmic force. Who could say? I was here, happily isolated, on the side of a sugar loaf of rock and earth. But a mate was supposed to visit this weekend. She was to make the passage across Bass Strait, put in at the port and drive those country roads my way en route to a forest protest. The spirit couldn't make the crossing. It had to stay on the mainland. There's a euphemism there too. I'm not sure what it is. I was in for a couple of days of solitude then. 
cut off for a bit from the rest of the world. After all that rain, I woke to a quiet morning. The bush was coming back to life, the birds out of hiding. Paddy Mellon's paws pressing into the damp earth, the frogs croaking a celebratory chorus. The hush of the bush was matched by the hiss of so many waterways rushing down the slopes into the already swollen river. I knew that downhill in the village there had been damage done, fences ripped up, carpets ruined, shop fronts flooded. There would be a cost, actual loss. A real flood, not metaphor, had torn through the town. Perhaps there would also be lessons learned, food for thought. I looked out on the yard and realised it wouldn't be long before the green hue was gone. The grass would grow lank and long. The moss would desiccate. The sun would irradiate the land. The earth would thirst again. The river levels would fall and it would all seem a distant dream. By then... I may well have travelled somewhere else. Although, as you may have noticed, only a small percentage of my voyages are through the waterways of the real world. Most of them are on the floodwaters of time. And occasionally one can push against the current. Up a tributary, on a journey to some unlikely source. A place where stories are born. And more prevalent still are the voyages that go inward, into the deepest parts of myself. This story is for Isabella. Years ago, many, 
many, many years ago. I was a child too. I grew up in Marseille, as you may know, in the south of France. Although, of course, back then, France as a nation didn't quite exist. And Marseille was known as Massalia, which is only slightly more tricky to say. And at the very least has going for it the fact that it sounds a bit like how it's spelt. Unlike Marseille, which, you'll find it hard to believe, has more vowels than you can poke a stick at, and a pair of L's as well. But I digress. My father used to take me into the taverna, so he could knock off a flagon of wine every evening. I grew up around the hairy knees of merchant sailors, a multicultural mob who spoke among themselves all the languages of Europe. Some pretty, some guttural, all of them magnificent. At night they would have performers come in. Let's say they were servants. I reckon they were slaves. And they'd play the clarinet and cavort acrobatically and dance half-naked and sing a cappella. Their voices slightly slurred, which in hindsight at least seemed to make their songs all the more heartfelt, tragic, full of desire, erotic. One night a man came in, My father recognised him. I thought I faintly did too, although when I mentioned that later, Dad scoffed. He said I couldn't have. He'd been gone for almost the entire time I'd been alive. Still, he seemed familiar. His name was Pythias, a Greek, dark and handsome, with humour in his eyes, but inscrutable. Yeah, he'd been away for many years on a journey that he began to recount that night. Although as far as I can recall, his narrative spanned many nights. It went on for weeks or maybe months. It was the story that was told the longest and most often in that taverna, which I frequented for some time, until I was an adult. That is to say, until I too left on a voyage of my own. Pythias was a merchant. Not very rich, they said. But he had his own niche in the local economy. I'd heard he was ambitious. More crafty and creative than most. Pretty bold. Audacious, even. So no one was surprised to hear that he'd gone off suddenly upped and left after hearing of a rumour of a good deal on some cargo in the Tin Islands. Now most merchants there in the Mediterranean, where I grew up all those years ago, they weren't so keen on travelling that far north. Shithouse weather, they said. Always overcast, cold and grey, and then the breezes would get up. The wind they called Boreas. That ice-edged force field that was said to slice even the hardiest, best-rigged ships to bits. Yet when someone spoke of this, aghast, Pythias just smirked. Yes, he said. Not so nice. 
but there is worse. In the Tin Islands, the Tinnies we called them Isabella, our man Pythias had met some traders who were headed beyond even that bleak and barren archipelago. Ierna, he said. And someone in the bar swore at the very name of that place. Ierna, he said. Bugger me dead. That's barely habitable, that place. Well, so they say. By humans, that is. Good for geese. Good for frogs, I guess. What the hell did you do there in Ierna? Pythias gave a sly grin again and said, Ierna. Yes, it's not much chop. Hardly any trees. You wouldn't take a dip in the water there. Not like here in our beloved sea. But the people there are better than you'd think. Why, I'd stand any of them a drink if they were among us in this taverna tonight. But that's neither here nor there. For the merchants I was with were interested in travelling further, to an even more distant region an island they called Tool. Well now Pythias's pub audience was even more shocked. One of the dancing girls got up to entertain. Men and women alike told her to wait. We were all on tenter hooks waiting to hear where Pythias had gone. Tool. The arse end of the north wind, that's what they said where Apollo got the sound for his instruments. Where the whooping swans flapped their wings and made the weather begin. Where the fairies lived. Well, said Pythias, we sailed for six days, or was it seven? And as we ventured northward, the very sea our boat floated on began to congeal. That's the only word I have for it. It became a sort of slush, or jelly. What else can I say of it? Now Pythias sipped his drink. It was like the texture of your lungs. A marine lung. We all laughed as well. And the sun... The sun simply would not set. It was daytime all the time. It was like night had been banished. The sky was green and it flickered and it flashed. At the edges of the land of Tool I saw sparks fly, the whole coastline afire with a great glow, as if that country was a giant metalworker's forge. And here some of the men involuntarily groaned. We could go no further. But we dropped the anchor and watched, and I knew in that moment, Pythias said and took another sip, then wiped the wine from his lips. I knew that in that moment, that there would be no end to the adventures that could be made on this earth, that even the most remote and unlikely places, inhospitable, perhaps uninhabitable, All of them could be reached by humans. For better or for worse.
Not long later, I was old enough to enlist on a voyage of my own. Such was the beginning of my career as a sailor, later as an explorer. I worked my way up through the ranks so that eventually I was captain. And I'll never forget the day I took the helm of my own ship, the Baudelaire, she was called. I'll have to translate that for you some other time. And then there was that sunny day when I set out from the Mediterranean, travelling west, with salted cod and dried beans stowed away in the hold, and flagon upon flagon upon flagon of wine. And stowed deep within my heart were the words of Pythias the Greek, that the adventures would go on forever, that love and money may inspire them, but better still, curiosity could take you wherever you wanted to go. So off we went. But yeah, yeah, I know, I should rein it in. I've told you about that journey over and over again. Sorry, Isabella. I'm an old man now, past my prime, withering away, practically an invalid, and crippled with fear. But I do sometimes wonder, Isabella, what adventures you will take, what voyages you'll go on. But anyway, Isabella, could you please go to the fridge and grab me another beer? <laughs>